Day, we celebrate the physical resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah, he is risen. Um, the resurrection is fundamental to the Christian faith. Um, the physical resurrection. Don't believe anyone who tells you otherwise. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection are really one event. Now, chronologically, there are three days between them, but theologically, they, they, they are intertwined and you can't separate them. You can't have the resurrection without the cross, you can't have the cross without the resurrection. The whole thing falls apart. And so we celebrate the resurrection today, but even to celebrate the two and separately, if you're, you're creating a dichotomy that's not there. Jesus rose again, and the significance of it is because of what he did at the cross three days earlier. Listen to the Apostle Paul, it's one of the most staggering statements on the resurrection in the Bible. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, by that phrase means those who have died as believers, have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 to 19. So a believer is someone who has been joined by faith to Jesus. There's many different ways of describing what's a believer. One very helpful way, and probably the most common way in the New Testament, is it's someone who has been joined by faith to Jesus. There's actually been a joining of spirits. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17 says that we are one spirit with him. I mean, you can't get more intimate than that. It's not simply, he's my friend by my side, which is true. It's much more intimate than that. It's much more intrusive than that. It's not just he looks after me, although he does. It's more than that. You're one spirit with him. When you put your faith in Christ, when it's real, genuine, God-given faith in Christ, there's a mystical union. Suddenly you know him. And you can't pretend you don't. You're in him. He's in you. He's in you by his spirit. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're in him in the sense that as he is the head, you become the body. You become his body. The church is the body of Christ. Now, the, 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 the linkage between the head and the body, it's not mechanical, is it? It's organic. So the Bible uses these images deliberately to speak of the intimacy of the believer with Jesus. This is what Paul is referring to when he says that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then those who fall asleep as believers also perish. What he's saying is this. If you're a believer, then what, what is true of Jesus is true of you. So if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, neither of you. If Jesus has not physically been raised from the dead, don't think for a minute you're going to have eternal life. Because the whole confidence of a believer is that I'm joined to him. He has beaten the grave, therefore I will be the grave. Yeah? He's ascended to heaven, therefore I will be with him in heaven forever. Because I'm part of him. And because he's part of me. And so you often get these what I would call peddlers or salesmen who say that Christ's physical resurrection is not essential to the gospel. It's not essential to our salvation. There is no foundation to what they say. They're simply pandering to the views of the anti-supernatural law. They're simply taking the message and trying to make it sound more um, intellectually uh, acceptable in order to stop the scorning and the mockery of those who don't like the supernatural and so they just, they just remove this essential part of the message and say, no, it still works. It doesn't still work at all. 
You've created your own gospel that is no gospel. There's no promise of eternal life in there. Avoid those people like the plague. Jesus is the death beater. This message is called Two Death Cheaters and One Death Beater. Jesus is the death beater. But before Jesus came, there are two people recorded in the Bible who didn't beat death, but they cheated death. And I want us to look at those and look at how they pointed to Christ, because it's very, very intriguing. The first one is... Enoch! Enoch! See, he only gets a small mention. So you can think, well, what did Enoch do? Well, I think this is the beauty of Enoch. We don't know. What did Enoch accomplish? No one's got a clue. So why Enoch? Well, there are some clues in the text. We read it in um, Genesis chapter 5. Now, Enoch lived in the antediluvian period. That's the term used to describe the period before the flood. Now, that period was marked by strife, violence. It was marked by a revenge. It was, it was, uh, it was a, a, a generation, or a series of generations, if you like, that grieved God's heart immensely. And yet Enoch seems to have remained completely untainted by that. He lived in the midst of it, and yet he was completely apart from it. Genesis 5, verses 23 to 24. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. People in the antediluvian period lived a lot longer. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's Enoch. <laughs> That's there he is. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. Now you will find that statement in the list of genealogies. So and so, son of so and so, son of so and so. And it really just says who they were, um, who their eldest son was, and what age they died. And then suddenly you get to Enoch, and the whole language changes. It doesn't say what age he died, it just says he was not, for God took him. And just in case that leaves you with a question mark, you're thinking that sounds a bit ambiguous, if you go to Hebrews 11, verse 5, it's very clear. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him up. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Well, what did he do? <laughs> he walked with God. He was a friend of God. That's really what Mark did. We don't. He didn't build anything. Didn't accomplish anything particular. Well, he may have done, but it's not even recorded. It's almost words to him. He walked with God. He was a friend of God. There's this simplicity within him. It's beautiful. And in the end, it got to the point where God said, "I've just got to have it with me." I just can't wait for another 300 years. I just, he's just ravished my heart. We've just, uh, come on, bring him up, bring him up. And God can do that kind of stuff. He doesn't need to give an explanation. He can just do it. Some people just get too much for God. He just loves him. He's just got to come home quick. And just quick. Suddenly he wasn't. Where's he? I don't know. God. Enoch was, a, Enoch was a, a pointed to Jesus Christ. There's one other reference to Enoch in the whole of the Bible. Anyone know what to get to? It's in the second to last book in the Bible. The book of Jude. Here's what it says. Jude, sorry, it says Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, so we know that he prophesied once, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. So what's happening here? Enoch saw and prophesied the second coming, having lived thousands of years before the first coming of Jesus. He just walked with God. He saw it. He saw the return of Christ coming with all the angels to judge. 
You won't find it in Genesis, but the writer to Jude obviously had a record of it. So he not prophesied, he pointed to Christ. Not only that, his whole intimacy with God was just a picture of Jesus. Anyone in the Bible, you've got to, you've got to see beyond them to Christ. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Enoch points to Christ with his prophecy, with his lifestyle, with his simplicity. Jesus is the one, isn't he? When, his, when Jesus' disciples are arguing, who's going to be the greatest? Power. I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the biggest apostle. Jesus brought a child into the middle of him. He said, you want to be great in the kingdom? There you go. Be like this one. Bam. Just this simplicity. Jesus is the one who rebuked his disciples when his disciples were rebuking the parents for bringing their kids to Jesus. The disciples were like, don't, don't come with the teacher. He's too busy with great things. Jesus was like, no, you stop. Bring the children. I want to see the children. I love the children. Jesus had this beautiful simplicity about him also. Jesus is the one who rejected the complicated rule-making religion of the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't just have the Ten Commandments. They created another 600 or so to satisfy themselves. They made it very complicated. Jesus rejected that outright. Jesus, Jesus is the one who chooses to barbecue some bread and fish on the beach with his friends by way of clearing up some difficult business. He's got to talk to Peter about the denials. So what does he do? We'll have a barbecue first. And pray it's this humanity, the simplicity of Jesus. It's beautiful. His simplicity is all part of his glory. So we've got Enoch, the first death cheater, pointing to Jesus. Who's next? Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in Israel at a time of deep distress and significant spiritual malaise. The king of the land was Ahab, and he married a woman, she was a disaster, a woman called Jezebel. And um, he was a weak and a pathetic king who was really no more than a child. His emotional development had been seriously arrested at some point. And if you read the accounts, it was, it was quietly bad for a man like this ruling the country. He married a dominating, occultic woman who loved his weakness. And so together they brought absolute disaster on Israel. And they brought in all kinds of different gods to worship and turned it into a polytheistic thing. And it was just horrendous. And they, where they could, they would kill and slay God's prophets. It was a terrible time. And uh, Elijah appears out of nowhere and proclaims judgment on the whole nation. There will not be any rain until I speak the word for authority. Wow. What was it about Elijah? With Enoch, you've got this simplicity, this just... This childlike walk with God. What is it with Elijah? It's the zeal. It's the holy zeal. Elijah is a walking volcano. He's just a man burning with zeal for the glory of God. And again, it just gets too much for God. God has to take him. Come on, just come back. Elijah spoke up in the face of Paulus. He's a wonderful example. He put his head above the parapet. One of the big problems with the church, particularly in the West at the moment, is that we don't put our head above the parapet, keep quiet. We, don't, we, we fear being labelled old-fashioned, antiquated, moralistic, we fear the accusations of the world, so we keep quiet. And what, I think, was it Martin Luther King Jr. who said, you know, that evil prevails and good, good, you know, good men remain quiet, and I think said that. The church is actually quiet. Elijah steps right into the middle of this scenario, the disaster, and just begins to speak. The word of the Lord. And as such, he spends three years of his life on Israel's most wanted list. He spends a lot of that time living by a river where God ordered ravens to feed him and he drank of the brook until the brook dried up because of the drought that he had proclaimed. Then he had to go and, uh, he went and lost with a widow and a son for the rest of the time. Humble, really. Humble surroundings and yet intimate with God. Intimate with God. These people, 
these people that were so markedly different from the age and time around them, they walked in intimacy with God. There's something in there. Christians are not to be weird for the sake of it. Just dress strange and talk in old English. There's nothing that glorifies God in that at all. But neither should Christians conform to the pattern of saying, there's nothing that glorifies God in that. They have to be utterly different. Utterly holy. Like Elijah. His zeal was just like Jesus' zeal. Remember when Jesus went to the temple and he found the money changes in there and they turned it into a business? You think, you know, young crazy, what would Jesus do? What? Who would have predicted what Jesus did? You'd have thought he would have said, come here. Remove now to the glory of God. No, he just turned the table down. <laughs> he made a whip first. We didn't lose his temple. It took time to make a whip, of course. It was premeditated. When he turned the tables over and drove them out, and they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? Because he walked in the authority of God. You see, there was this zeal. He burned, he burned with passion for the glory of God. It wasn't religion. It wasn't, oh, this is a thing, like, you know, I do this on Sunday, or I have this belief. He burned with passion for the glory of God. And it cost him. It cost Elijah hugely. Like I said, he spent his, most of his ministry as a wanted man being chased down by a murderous queen. Elijah's miracles were just like Jesus's. Man, we went, we, God sends him to a widow. He finds the widow picking up sticks. He says, well, you couldn't do us a little cake and a drink, could you? He says, you're joking. He says, I'm picking up these sticks now to cook the last bit of food for me and my son. He said, well, if you do me a cake first, I think it'll be all right. Gosh, boldness on and then the oil and the flour never ran out until the drought came. Just to remind you, it's like the feeding of 5,000. It's this miraculous provision, isn't it? Or there's the false religious leaders of the day that Elijah challenged on Mount Carmel. These prophets of Baal, gather them together. All these prophets, 400, 550 of them. Do, do what you can. Whichever God answers with fire from heaven, he's a true God. You call out to Baal, and he just sat there. Prophets start doing their thing and start, and they start slicing themselves with spears, which is part, they would have done that as part of their ritual anyway. Everything's possible, <laughs> And uh, nothing's happening. Then Elijah begins to mock, well, maybe he's on holiday. Maybe he's in the toilet. We should read it, too. And then, and then it's Elijah's turn, and he pours water all over the sacrifice just to make the point. This isn't because it's got really hot part of the day, it's a natural thing, pours water all over it, and just prays a simple prayer. Completely, completely undermines the false religious leaders of the day, just like Jesus the Pharisees. Just like Jesus. Stood up to them with their hypocrisy and their double standards and saying one thing and doing something else. Jesus now and again and again and again. Elijah's just like him. Elijah brought three years of drought, ended in the nation of Israel turning back to God. Jesus brought three years of rain, if you like, spiritual rain, ended in the nation of Israel crucifying God. While Jesus' life ended in degradation and dereliction, look at how Elijah's life ended. 2 Kings 2, verse 11. As they went and talked, Elijah and Elisha, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. He didn't go up in the chariots of fire, just in the shoe, he didn't. They, they came and they separated Elijah from Elijah, the angelic um, beings. And then there was a whirlwind to I don't think there has been any 
such a dramatic departure in the whole of history than Elijah's. Very different from Jesus's. Very different from Jesus's. So if Enoch and Elijah both cheated there, but neither of them did there, that task was reserved for Jesus. And I want to just end by looking at Jesus Christ's victory over death. You think, well, why didn't Elijah, or why didn't, why didn't, why didn't, that wasn't their role, that wasn't their calling. It was Jesus' calling to defeat there. And it's an authority issue. So the Bible teaches that there was one who holds, or maybe better to use the past tense now, who held the power of death, the devil. And Jesus had to enter into death in order to take him on. He had to actually, where the others cheated death, Jesus deliberately gave himself up to death, volunteered himself. The whole of the arrest is all orchestrated by him. He deliberately went to death. We're told this in Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So how did he do? Did he, did he, did he do okay? Did he, was he successful? Revelation 1 verse 17. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the key to death and hate. Hallelujah. Glory. I have the key. What do keys represent? They represent ownership. Don't they? I know that. <laughs> keys are important things. We got back from holiday yesterday. And we had a key situation. The key situation was this. I wasn't here last week. The van keys again. We had a couple of van keys about a month ago. The van keys were posted into my landlord's letterbox who lived underneath us. Um, with the, because they were attached to the door keys. Because he was then going to come up to our house during the week and fix some banisters. So we arrived home from holiday yesterday expecting some fixed banisters and keys. What we found were not fixed banisters, no keys. And suddenly you're just aware of how important those little things are. <laughs> I thought, I can't believe this. The keys were posted to, they're under, they're just there. They're just beneath, I landed with just beneath us. They're just there. But, the, and the van is just there. And I can't get in the van to get to the cupboard to load all the stuff to bring to church. So that's what we were welcomed with when we got back yesterday. And it was a situation, you suddenly realised, oh, I've only had the keys. Why? Because keys represent access. They represent um, that you've got the right to come in. I had to, I had to actually get into my landlord's place without keys. <laughs> Which is not good. Because, and that represents bad behaviour, okay? <laughs> that represents not having, you know, I squared it with him afterwards, so it's fine. But we had to do that. Okay, but keys represent, no, I, I, I've got the authority, this belongs to me, I can do this. So we see Jesus has the keys to death. What's Hades? What's Hades? Hades is the waiting place for death. It's the waiting place for death. It's where, um, so it, 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 it's hard to piece together scripturally, but it looks like Hades has two elements to it. One element is paradise, which is where the saints go when they die, and the other, the other place would be place of darkness and waiting for judgment. Those who come who have not um, repented of their sins. So Jesus is a lot of things. I have the authority over death now and over Hades. He did it. He did it. He did it by going through death. He did it by entering into our death. 
So Jesus has the authority and he has the rights. He's in charge of death. Satan has been stripped of the authority. Destroyed by Jesus. And so now death has no power over the believer. So now when a believer dies, what does he do? He falls. Biblically, that's the terminology. If you're a believer, when you die, you fall asleep. So we believe in healing and miracles. But if you're going to die, die well. Okay? That's the deal. We love to see God heal and break in and do miraculous but But when, when you die, when it's time, you die well. Because you know you're right with God. You know you are connected intimately, organically with the one who has the keys to death and Hades. There's nothing to fear. Hallelujah. So where does this leave us? We looked at Enoch, Elijah, Jesus. Where does it leave us? On this Easter Sunday, it leaves us in the hands of the living one. Hallelujah. He's alive and we're in his hands. It leaves us with the gift of eternal life. It leaves us under the lordship of the one who promises life to the full. This is who you're with. This is, this is, if you're in Christ, this is your privileges. And it leaves you in a position where you're able to live a very different life than if you're not with Christ. And I want to look at this for a minute, some implications quickly of what it means to be in Christ, lifestyle-wise. You see, just before Jesus was crucified, he said this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls into the ground, it bears much fruit. He's talking about himself and his death on the cross. He's saying, if I just carry on living like this, I'm not going to do anyone any good except myself. If I fall into the ground and die, then I will produce much fruit. Um, then he went on to speak about discipleship. If anyone loves this life, then you will lose it. Whoever hates this life in this world will keep it for life eternal. And he's basically saying, if you're going to follow me, I want you to fall into the ground and die as well. Now, his death and our death are very different. His death was a one-off. He died as a sin bearer for the sins of the world. Okay? The last Adam, he came to do it for all of us. So our death is not vicarious, it's not on behalf of anyone else. But it's the death of a disciple, which is a different kind of death and yet necessary for a believer. You see, we want glory. But in order to enjoy the glory of Christ, you have to experience the cross. Jesus said that to his disciples. If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself daily, pick up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? This is helpful because it separates those who want to follow Jesus from those who are just religious. Because the reality is this, is that the cross of Christ comes to bite to the very heart of who you are. It comes to bite to the very heart of your hopes, dreams, ambitions, and, their, and, and God's desire basically is to kill you so that you can be released from just selfishness, slavery to your just your natural appetites, idolatry, that's the worship of other gods that aren't really gods, and so that you can rise up into a resurrection life where you're really following him. It's not a one-off, it's an ongoing experience. It's vital. And you avoid the cross to your own detriment. It's so easy to avoid the cross, because it's scary. It's scary. Well, the prospect of it is scary. When it actually comes, it isn't. Because it comes in the hands of the one who loves you. But it does come to kill off certain parts of you. And this isn't preached much in churches. And we wonder why, you know, we find ourselves, I'm not being horrible, but the church is looked upon in this country and pitied by many other churches and many other nations. And it doesn't seem horrible. Poor thing. 
is the power. You know, they, and they, they, they feel for us. Even I remember hearing stories of Chinese Christians under intense persecution saying, no, we're praying for, and being interviewed by Westerners saying, no, we're praying for you. You preach the gospel and no one gets saved. You pray for the sick that don't get healed. We're all right. And I, I just feel, you know, look, if you want to enjoy the empty tomb and the resurrection power, you, you've got to go, that's the journey, you go through the cross. It's not just, obviously there's an initial thing as a believer, okay, when you initially get saved, I give my life to your Lord, I submit, but it, it's not just supposed to you point back, oh yeah, no, I prayed that prayer, no, 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 it's you're entering into a lifestyle of saying it's not about me anymore, and I'm going to embrace the cross, and it's not, it's not alright to just come and sing some songs and have a bit of Jesus, no. It's an insult, actually. It's a total insult. Um, and it's completely unhelpful and completely unfruitful and, and totally distorts what this whole thing is about. This whole thing is about the fact that we have fallen, and as a result, because we were made to worship, but fallen from God, we still worship, but we don't worship God, we tend to worship ourselves or something else. So Jesus comes to bear our sin and our judgment and to release us from that fallen life so we can worship Him again. And to worship Him means a lot more than to to worship him means that he is the Lord. And anything he puts his finger on the challenge, we say God. And I tell you what, that involves a whole lifetime of learning how to repent properly. That's my testimony, absolutely. There are issues I'm working through now that I look at myself and think, this one's been years. But I'm determined to get it. And it can be discouraging when you fail, can't it? But you know, God's with, God's with us in it. You think, well, why am I labouring this? Because you can't shortcut it. You can't, because if you shortcut it, you say, I know, I know better than God. Well, we'll do it this way. No, it won't work. It won't work. And I just want to say this to you. If you want to enjoy intimacy with Jesus, which I think we all, we all do, those of us are born again, it's what our heart desires more than anything else. It will take, it will cost you I went to visit the church in Liverpool once, an outstanding church. I said to the pastor, what did it cost you? He said, everything. I was like, okay. <laughs> Some questions you wish you hadn't asked. But I was, I was glad he said that. I'm glad you said that, because you're not putting any punches. You're not just making, you're not padding it round. You said everything. I thought, right, it will cost you everything. Why? Because Jesus wants your heart. He wants your heart. And he gave himself for you. And if you're in Christ today, you're in Christ as a gift. It's his grace. We're told of Jesus that though he was rich, he became poor. He has done it. I mean, he has done it. Where, where do you want to go? To the incarnation? Uh, this is staggering. God is now a man forever. God is now a man forever. The incarnation. Jesus is the man in heaven. He is a man forever. That's the cost. Why? Why did he do it for you? Goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's facing the cup. He knows he's got to drink the cup of the wrath of God. And suddenly starts to dawn on him. What is actually going to mean? He goes through it. He's done it. Why? For you. The mocking, the insults, the opposition. Why? For you. The testing in the desert by Satan. He kept it went. Why? For you. He has poured himself out for you. And as a result, you that know the Lord today, sit here, knowing your sins forgiven, knowing you're a new creation, you're going to be with him forever. Beautiful. He's done it. So this isn't a self-effort thing. 
It isn't, oh, okay, right, I'm going to be like Enoch now. I'm going to be like Elijah now. Okay, I'll be like that. No, you won't. You can't. It's not how it works. They were what they were through faith in Christ. You can only be what you are called to be through just completely looking to, thinking of, considering and giving yourself to Jesus Christ. As you do that, you will become enamored with him. You will love him. And you will want to, more than anything else, find ways of destroying everything in your life that gets in the way of learning. That's why my one plea to you is this. Fill your mind with Jesus. Not religion, not how am I doing, have I done well enough? Jesus, just let the narrative, the wonder, the glory of who he is, fill your mind continually. That's why our songs are full of who he is. It's just renew your mind. And it's suddenly that thing which looks so costly becomes a joy. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you are to us. And I want to say thank you for calling us on to discipleship. Because, Lord, it's not middle of the road. And it's not easy. But it's exhilarating. And it's glorious. And I thank you, Lord, that you want to deliver us from the snare of idolatry. Of worshipping things that promise so much and deliver so little. Whether it's materialism, whether it's ourselves, whether it's another person, whether it's a hobby. Whatever it is that keeps us from actually loving you with all that we are. Deliver us from it, Lord, I pray. Deliver us from it, Lord. I want to pray, Holy Spirit, you would highlight idolatry from his life right now because you're merciful. Highlight what it is. What are you putting your finger on? Highlight it, Lord. Not to try and get them worked up into a frenzy, but to then draw them to you. So they can, in you, find liberty from them. What is it, Lord? Fears? Fears of the future? Dreams of the future held too tightly? Lord, by your Spirit, reveal it, I pray. By your Spirit, reveal it, I pray. That we might repent. That we might repent. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're here and you're not a believer, I want to just say, look, this message is for you. Jesus Christ did all those things for you. I want to ask you, I want to ask you to repent of your sins. Put your faith in Unashamedly. Unashamedly. Don't carry on in independence and self sufficiency when you can know the Lord. Why would you want to do that? We're going to take the bread and the wine in just a moment. And really, we just do that. It's not a memorial, because you do a memorial to remember someone's death. That's not a memorial. It's, a, it's what we do to encounter Christ. So it's not that the bread actually becomes his body, and the wine actually becomes his blood. That's called transubstantiation. I believe in that. But neither is it just a memorial. It's grace given from the Lord as we take the bread and take the wine. As we say, I'm part of you, Jesus. I want to be in you. It's grace given. Straight from the Holy Spirit. And so, I want to ask that if you're a believer, please do this. Do it, do it well. What I mean is that if there is sin to repent of, please just get right with God before you take the bread and the wine so you take it with me. If you're not a believer, don't just take it as some kind of charm, some kind of lucky thing, or, you know, rosary beads, put them in the garden and bread and wine on a Sunday. doesn't work. doesn't work. This is, this is an expression of your faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, I wanted to encourage all of us as a church. We're on a journey of repentance. That's our whole lifestyle is repentance. And it's not a grim and a morbid thing, it's a glorious thing. It means we're constantly being changed. That's what the word means, from one degree of glory to another. So don't back off or shy away from repentance. Don't back off from confession. The Bible says if we confess, he won't judge us, he'll forgive us and cleanse us. 
Amen? Amen. Amen. So if the band would like to come back up, we're going to sing some more songs without any words. And we're going to celebrate Jesus Christ alive again for us. And take a break.